The title of the second panel today is The Singapore Community, Solidarity, Not Contention. This panel will tackle the assumption that there will be increasing competition for political, social and cultural space among different segments of our population, including the young and the old, the local and the foreign-born, in a society that is facing rapid demographic change. Moderating this panel is Dr. Jillian Koh, Deputy Director of Research at IPS. May I invite Dr. Koh to introduce the panel and the speakers. Dr. Koh. Thank you, Yvonne. Good morning and thanks again for being here at Singapore Perspectives 2018, uh, where the theme is together. And I think the heart of the issue that we're trying to tackle is the question of intergenerational solidarity in an aging Singapore. This year, the number of people who are turning 65 will outnumber the number of people who are turning 15. We are an aging society, we know this, but the question is how will we choose to age? How will we choose to celebrate or deal with the challenges that come with being an aging society? We kicked off with a session on the economy and we um, uh, thought through uh, whether we are able to ensure that we can make our workplaces uh, happy places that are inclusive, that the workplace is not age prohibitive, as Sean told us. And Mr. Ravi Menon cited many ways in which we can ensure that with an aging but quality workforce, being aging may not, need not be a drag on our economy. I think those policy choices within our households, within our companies, and across the country are choices that will hinge on how we deal with the social, the cultural, and therefore the political implications of being an aging society. Where the rubber hits the road, certainly one question will have to do with how we help each other afford what comes with being an aging society. So Sean cited the two sides of that 2.1 old age support ratio. And he said that on the side of those who are still working, then how will you uh, continue to contribute to the side that's not working in many ways in the workplace, but also with taxation, fiscal support? Then on the other side, the 2.1 side, the question to the people on that side is how willing are you able to adapt to continue to make yourself relevant uh, to society and the economy and willing to play your part to uh, really shifting uh, the, the economy as well as society. So, are we prepared? Let me just take two minutes to draw your attention to what we found in our survey, which has been published in the little background paper. Are we prepared at least to deal with the fiscal aspects, which then come down to the political question of how far we will go in order to reinforce this sense of solidarity that we have in Singapore. What did we find? That on the questions of how far will you go to 
um, support the older generation, 41% of our respondents said that each generation to take care of itself. 41% said no to older generation setting aside its assets for future generation. 39.8% said no to paying more taxes to support social spending. We'd rather you tap the reserves. And 36.6% said, please use the NRI to uh, you know, uh, afford us that social spending, NIR. So uh, that seems like it's not the majority, but it is still a significant minority that are saying, hey, each generation should take care of itself. You also contributed to reserves, so tap that. But the good news is actually when you look at the stats, there is a huge bar of people who are in the orange band who are neutral about these questions. And I don't know where you stand, but I'm certainly going to invite the two speakers on this panel to persuade you about what your position should be at the end of this session. Where will you stand? In the grey side, in the orange side, or the blue side? Right? So that's the task, Professor Chan Heng Chi and Mr. Lawrence Lien. So before they go up and sell you their point of view, let me just say a little bit about why we've invited them to have this position to influence you this morning. Professor Chan is not just ambassador at large, but more importantly, is the chairman of a new but very promising, uh, what I would call research center and think tank. It's called the Lee Kuan Yew Center for Innovative Cities. More importantly, she's just completed a two-year project envisioning Singapore in 2050. So for that reason, we decided to call upon her to give us her best thoughts on the question of how we can strengthen our international solid, uh, intergenerational solidarity coming from the point of view of the social, cultural, and political angles. Now, to my left is a very dear friend, uh, Mr. Lawrence Lien, who himself also heads up an extremely innovative social laboratory. He has money to put aside for people to think differently. <laughs> from, from childcare and preschool education, doing tremendous work about how to foster inclusive childcare facilities that bring together kids of special needs, kids from disadvantaged homes, and enriching curriculum so that everyone can have quality preschool education. Right up to the question of how do we want to choose to age? And therefore, many of you will remember that the Lien Foundation that he chairs uh, actually drove a program talking about the uh, usual taboo question, which is, how would you like to die, right? The end of life issues. And I think what they did was really to change the paradigm, that there is a choice about how you want to spend your last days, and you can choose to spend your last days in a quality fashion which balances that precise question we're asking, who should take care of you? How should we do it? Would it be by money or would it by, be by social capital? 
or other questions. So two great people to be addressing the issues we have at hand. And with that, please join me in welcoming Prof Chan and inviting her to deliver her presentation. Prof Chan, please. Distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen. Now, uh, I've been asked to speak on the session on the Singapore community, solidarity, not contention. And I've titled my topic, The Future Politics of Aging. So Gillian, I'm sorry, I can't just emphasize solidarity. I'm going to talk a bit about contention. <clears throat> Population aging is undeniably one of the major issues of our times. It is inevitable and will happen in all societies globally. Demographic trends have a quality of certainty, short of dramatic change due to war or a catastrophic disaster. No one has denied population aging. The other issue of our times, climate change, is climate change, but there, some people deny it. <clears throat> a common concern for most countries is that as the population structure grows older, there may be emerging conflicts in society between the population who are growing older and the working uh, people who are not growing commensurately. We frequently highlight the uncomfortable comfortable truth that the old age dependency ratio will rise. There will be far more dependent people than there are working people. The IPS background paper has projected this. And uh, Christopher G has pointed out that the dependency ratio will be 24 older people per 100 persons of working age in 2020 and 54 point elder people per 100 in 2040. Now contrast this with eight older age persons per 100 in 1980 and 11 to 100 in 2000. The burden is great. But is it just about who pays the taxes, who pays the bills, and who gets what space? Sociologists and gerontologists write of generational wars or age wars and age conflicts. Generational conflict sounds familiar, but generational war and age war seem overstated. The only age war I can think of, if it is one, is a conflict in the United States over the Vietnam War on the rights and wrongs of the war between young men, many college students, who were drafted to fight and die in a country far away, and middle-aged and older politicians and generals who were making decisions about the war. As some of you remember, protests spread across the campuses and in the streets. The Vietnam War triggered the counterculture revolution in America in the 1960s, and a major values disruption with it. By the time it was about values change, all ages were pulled in. Young people did start the process, but it became intergenerational. 
One can also think of young Chinese students in Tiananmen protesting against the economic and political issues of the day against the central authorities. It had nothing to do with age conflict. It was a protest against the Communist Party and government on issues of inflation, unemployment, and corruption. And the Arab Spring, which has been associated with young people, did not only involve young people, it involved older people too. In the end, the protests included everyone, and they were not about age-related issues. Now, if generational wars and age wars sound far-fetched, generational conflict and tensions do exist in Asia as well as in the West. Lester Thurow, the late political economist and dean of the MIT Sloan School, went so far as to say in 1996 that in the years ahead, class warfare is apt to be re redefined as the young against the old, rather than the rich against the poor, because of the explosion of public pension costs and health care. Now, his prediction has not come true in the 20 years since he made that statement in the US, in Europe, or anywhere else. In Asia, culture, tradition, and context will play a role in shaping the acceptance of burdens and the allocation of resources. So what will happen to our politics in the coming decades, given the growing senior vote? How will Singaporeans react to the claims of an aging society? What will happen to the politics of integration as it pertains to allocation and redistribution? And integration in aging societies inevitably raise the question of immigration. Let me talk of allocation and redistribution first. I have commented before that we do not have the same resistance to allocations of budget monies to subsidies for the old, the disabled, the poor, and single mothers with children you find in some industrialized societies. There, it is an ideological issue because Republicans in the US and the Conservative Party in the United Kingdom may not support welfare subsidies for those who cannot support themselves. There is usually a huge debate. In Singapore, it is different. If anything, Singaporeans applaud moves to increase welfare payments to the needy and say the government should give more. But of course, the government has not really raised taxes yet to pay for the subsidies though they talk about it. Our attitude can partly be explained by the exposure to years of early PAP democratic socialism. We have been socialized into a sense of egalitarianism and a sense of the larger good. I read a blog recently by Dave Chu of Singapore. If Dave Chu, Dave Chu is sitting out there, you know what I'm talking about. It was in Quora, it's a forum page for in Facebook. I quote him because he reflects this sentiment. He was answering the question, do Singaporeans still favor the People's Action Party? And this is what Dave Chu wrote. <clears throat> I quote, the Singapore electorate is probably conservative financially, 
centrist in politics, pragmatic, and not so idealistic. We are altruistic and believe in equality, but pragmatism is more important to us. We have little interest in the highfalutin ideals of freedom of speech, of human rights in the Western sense. We prefer to gauge our lawmakers by real changes they make to our lives. We are not stuck up by the left or right battle, and what we are keen on is to see our fellow citizens having a better life. If it means more subsidies, we're cool, as in good. Eh? If it means more taxes, which happened in 2015, it normally goes without so much as a whimper. Fundamentally, it is about what works and about what should. What, not about what works, it is about what works, sorry, not about what should. Dave Chu went on to discuss, yes, we support PAP, but, so he's not a flag waver. But it's interesting that he makes this comment. But I ask, will Singapore's tolerance for tax increases remain? Healthcare costs are indeed rising rapidly. Look at the slide. The topmost is the United States purple. The thick orange line is Singapore. Only Korea, South Korea, is rising less than Singapore. So while compared to other OECD countries, our healthcare costs are not as high, there is no doubt they are going north. We can have smart policies to try to moderate costs, but in the end, with the projected figure of 900,000 seniors aged 65 and above in 2030, which is only 12 years away, and the numbers will increase as we live longer and have better health, health costs will be hefty. I believe if taxes continue to increase, there will be unhappiness. And what the IPS survey shows, although there's a large group of neutrals at this point. Will this result in younger Singaporeans demanding a reduction in old, older citizens' benefits? I'm sure there is a tipping point, but we are not there yet, judging by the political debate. And there is the matter of public policy choices, of what proportion of the budget should be allocated to the expenditure for the young, and that for the older citizens before there is a contestation. I don't think we have that argument yet, but today we have simple conflicts of interest between the bicyclists and the PMD users, usually younger people, and walkways for the senior citizens in the housing estates, contestation over space. Now, some have argued that what may temper opposition to these allocations is the reality that everyone will age, and the expectation by the below 65s that one day they too will benefit from the same subsidies. This casts a different light on things. When the pioneer package was offered, not only were the pioneers made a happy lot, their children were happy too, because now the costs, healthcare costs for the family was lightened. But will there be pressure from those who just missed the package? But as Singaporeans live longer, it is not only healthcare costs that will be a political issue. 
There could be conflict or tensions over jobs and power positions. Today, we find older persons do not do well in finding the, oops, in finding the appropriate um, kind of work. This is a proportion of employed elderly is 25.8% who are in the workforce. The 5.4 and the last row is 2015. What is in orange is non-resident above 65. So only 25.8 of those, sorry, uh, 65 and above form really only 25.8% of the workforce. Percentage of elderly in various occupations. The last bar, the one in dark blue, is 2015. It's 1990, 2000, 2010, 2015. Where are the elderly or senior people, senior Singaporeans uh, working? Which areas? Cleaners, laborers, and related workers is the largest group. Service and sales workers, legislators, senior officials and managers, though that's declining, but the professionals are keeping up. Clerical and support um, workers are also growing. But the senior citizens, those that are growing older, are better educated, even as they age, and they may want to hold on to their last jobs or aspire to a better job. Some countries, such as the United Kingdom, do not have a retirement age at all. I was told by a young colleague at my center that she would resent it if she was told she should give up her job simply because she reached a determined number like 65 or 67 if she was still mentally or physically capable to hold the job. That would be ageism. And bear in mind that is the enabling technology to help the older workers. But at the same time, I think we have to be aware there will be increased automation that will do away with many jobs. And so the problem for us in Singapore, in most societies, is to find the sweet spot, the jobs for seniors that have to be created now that some jobs are taken away. Where do they fit? Next question. But the next generation will be impatient, waiting to take over positions at the top or near top. How does society deal with these pressures? I believe there will be tensions. In Singapore, we have a tradition of circulation at the highest echelons of the civil service. No permanent secretary gets more than 10 years as permsec. In politics, we are also pushing the circulation of leaders. We have the fourth generation now, and I read that the Workers' Party will be changing leaders too. Will we see a group of grey panthers emerging, fighting to hold their place in society and the economy? Will they demand more job opportunities and the right kind of jobs? Do they have to fight against ageism? I saw many American corporate leaders keeping very fit. They made sure they went to the gym, looked fit and good, so that their younger colleagues would not be able to push them aside. 
So please, keep fit, look good. <laughs> the grey vote will be a substantial constituency. In 2030, 900,000 is projected, 900,000 will be 65 and above. In 2030, the population of Singapore, citizens, if you hold that there will be no immigration at all from 2013, I'm taking this from the white paper, the population will be 3.4 million. 900,000, 65 and above, 3.4 million in the population. That makes your vote about 24 to 26%, I calculate. So it is a substantial vote. For the PAP, it has been something of a vote bank. Though in recent years, because of job disruption, some in their mid-50s and 60s may be more disgruntled. Inflation and the inability of pensioners or retirees to make ends meet is an effective slogan to rally votes in any country. But it is also true that among the high-income groups in many countries, Singapore included, older citizens form a substantial proportion. So among the rich, they are also old. <laughs> You'll get there too. <laughs> the aged do not form a monolithic vote. In Singapore, ethnicity and religion will further impact on voting behavior depending on the issues of the day. And it need not be just age-related. There are two other issues concerning age integration that I would like to highlight. I speak of age harassment. While there may not be public conflict or protests against the aging, age harassment takes place. Not the hashtag MeToo harassment, but abuse of the elderly in the homes by family members unable to cope with an aging relative who is bedridden and hard to care for. And there could be also poor treatment in ill-run institutions. Government and society need to find ways to alleviate stress in the family and monitor institutions for the aged. And Lawrence Lien will tell you about that. Now, I mentioned ageism earlier. What is ageism? It is prejudice and discrimination on the grounds of a person's age, most frequently seen in, in an employment. This is an issue everywhere and in Singapore, though there are some exceptions made to possession of special skills. And you can say, uh, you know, those who are older, innovative as well, I'll say, yes, they are very innovative. In a situation of declining population, this ought to be less of an issue. But change in mindset does not happen automatically. And Straits Times can help by not putting age after everyone's name. <laughs> yes, you know. I mean, they do Channing Chi, 70, Channing Chi, 71. Give me a break. <laughs> Tight labor force can help too. 
The retirement age in Singapore has been raised in 2017 from 62 to 67 for eligible employees. This is a good step, but there must be job growth for this to work well. You just can't say hire the older people. There must be job growth. And there needs to be genuine rethinking on the concept of aging and viewing the elderly people as an asset rather than liability. Now let me talk about immigration, regeneration, and renewal. I'm aging, give me a bit of time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm aging by the minute. <laughs> now, I come to the discussion of how aging societies cope with renewal or regeneration. I begin by recognizing anti-immigration is a global sentiment. But Singapore is not like every society and every country. We are a city and we are a city-state. And Janadas this morning made a brilliant presentation on highlighting the situation of a city-state. This debate will be continuing and the future debate could be contentious. But as, our, as a city-state, our working population cannot be replenished by internal migration. In other countries like Indonesia and China, People from the rural areas come to the city to work. Inevitably, immigration therefore comes up as a partial solution to augmenting population numbers and the workforce. Pro-birth policies is the other measure, but there are limits to their success. If Singapore turns off the immigration tap altogether and does not take in any new foreign non-residents, the Singapore population is expected to start shrinking in 2025, seven years away. Japan, it has been discussed, which has a population of 127 million today, will shrink to 50 million by 2100 if they do nothing. The Japanese government has been slowly but surely turning to immigration to deal with the population decline though they are a long way off. Foreigners constitute only 1.8% of their population in 2016. Some say Japan has robots. They produce robots to step up productivity. But what is a population of robots? There is no soul to the nation. So, but immigration is deeply unpopular in Japan, and Japan is a homogeneous and generally closed society. Like it or not, the issue of immigration must be addressed in Singapore. The conversation, I think, has shifted a little. Singaporeans generally accept that some immigration is necessary. They realize older citizens and young children need caregivers, which the working family cannot provide adequately. But they would like sustainable immigration and to know their core identity will not be eroded. Singaporeans are most concerned about job security, rightly so. It is an issue, then, of moderated immigration. The issue is not immigration or no immigration. 
We have gone past that. The question is how many and what types of immigration. We need the creative and the innovators, as well as caregivers and unskilled workers. As I said, there has to be job growth. Philip Yeo, in his interview with Sumiko Tan, said, we don't want so many masters, you know. We want people who can come in and also create jobs, the innovators. Now, when the numbers shrink drastically and the economy and society is affected, I think Singaporeans will be pragmatic. The critical issue is how we will integrate new citizens and how we integrate them better. Fortunately, we are not the first aging society in the world. We can learn from the example of others. Thank you. Prof Chan, thank you very much for your talk titled The Future, of, uh, the Future Politics of Aging. Uh, I know you major on the issue of contention and contestation, and that's why we wanted you here. But really, as you cited in your wide-ranging discussion, the contention over taxes, affording social spending, contention before you get to taxes, over jobs, uh, the spots at the top, uh, you know, and uh, spaces, and just even further down, the orientation towards having a multi-generational workforce, finding yourself among the aged, the senior, senior workers. Do you use that language of your being senior age or not? So you cited the issues of um, age harassment, which we have to grapple with. And the point of, I think, your discussions really to highlight these issues so that we can now know what are the problems and therefore then how do we want to overcome them in order to have a more inclusive society and therefore a more compassionate and inclusive politics as well. So thank you for that and now I'll just cut over to Lawrence and invite Lawrence to deliver his talk called Creating a Golden Age for Aging, Opportunities We Are Missing. And I think that he will offer um, more of a solutioning approach to our topic uh, right now. Thank you. Thank you, Julian, and thank you, IPS, for inviting me back. I was last at the Singapore Perspectives uh, Conference speaking in 2009, so either I did okay then or you have short memories. Okay. Today, I speak from someone working from the ground, and hopefully I'll give you a little bit more of a hopeful uh, uh, perspective so that you can at least you know not feel too depressed when you get out of here and it's called uh, creating a golden age for aging opportunities we are missing first I will start with my sons okay this was taken just two months ago I've, um, in, in the desert in Oman and when I tell people I've got three sons there, is usually, there are usually two standard responses. One is, SAF and the government must be very happy with you. That's one. And the second is, oh dear, nobody's going to take, you, take care of you in old age because you only have sons. I have a daughter. Okay. Um, sorry, factory closed. So I am starting to plan for aging early. Um, I take applications from future's daughter-in-laws, you know, from those who have got daughters, you know, but the 
condition is that they must take care of the in-laws, the father-in-law, and the mother-in-law, otherwise no inheritance. <laughs> but jokes aside, I think, you know, looking 30 years forward, you know, my children will be around my age, you know, they will be mostly, their children will be mostly young. I do not want to be a burden to them. I need to, I want to be independent. So I need to look at what life would be like if I want to be independent. You know, I, and if I look at the end of life, there are really four scenarios, right? Sudden death, terminal illness, frailty, organ failure. We all don't, we, we all have to go, you know, some way we have to go. We try not to be chronically ill, you know, organ failure, C, you know, where it's up and down, you know, uh, uh, your, your functionality. Uh, frailty, also we try not to because it's a slow decline. Terminal illness, okay, it's a quick decline. Um, not too bad, but the best, I think, is uh, sudden death, right? <laughs> okay, where you, you live, everything is fantastic, and then suddenly you drop dead, okay? Um, so how do we do that? I mean, terminal illness, I think that the issue is, uh, okay, you want to avoid, but if you get it, you know, too bad, you know, let's, but you, have, you need to reduce futile EOLs, end-of-life treatment. I think that's too much. Uh, futile treatment, and I'll come back to this, you know, I think having morphine in the system is quite nice, you know, uh, you invest in palliative care. Um, we want to fight frailty, I'll come back to this again. Uh, fight chronic disease, you know, and focus on preventative care. But sudden death, you know, if you are functioning so high, you don't want to commit suicide, right? right? You want to die well, but you also don't want the family to, to you know, suddenly lose you. So I thought maybe you can uh, subsidize bungee jumping for seniors, you know. <laughs> or, you know, basically take more risk, you know, and then you can die happy. But let's see, how are we doing in Singapore on all these fronts? Um, I think, in my view, there are too many people in Singapore who are chronically sick and fail, too much organ failure. Thankfully, the kidney disease numbers have improved for the first time, I think, for, for decades. Um, and, you know, if you go to nursing homes, you know, one of uh, the CEOs of an Australian uh, nursing home operator came to visit our nursing homes, and his first impression, I asked him, what's your first impression about nursing homes? That's different from that in Australia. He said, too many wheelchairs. Why are there so many wheelchairs in your nursing home? We don't see them in our nursing homes. People are a lot more independent, and actually, you know, the, 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 the age profile is a lot older. So we are, we are not keeping people well enough, and, and um, we are also not tackling end-of-life care well. Uh, Artu Kawande wrote this fantastic book, Being Mortal, um, and he says that less than one-third of patients with end-stage diagnosis you know, discuss their goals and preferences with the cl clinicians, you know, uh, when they uh, come to, towards the end-of-life care. And they came, and we were wasting too much resources and futile care, and he came up with this serious illness conversation card, which practically never happens in Singapore, which I would love to see happen, where the focus is on, you know, allowing people, you know, to, to talk about what is most important when they are uh, in, in, the, in the end of, of life, uh, and avoid what is happening today. You know, 77% of Singaporeans want to die at home, yet only 27% of do so. 
61% died in hospitals. Then if you look at uh, whether we are ageist, I think we, we, we spoke a, a bit about this. We are an ageist society. Why? Because the president said so. Okay? Um, when, you, when you're a speaker of parliament. But ageism, we always talk it, about it in the employment context. It's in every aspect of life. You know, not just the Straits Times, but on the roads. I mean, I'm both ageist and sexist on the roads. Public transport, at home, at the community, advertisements, popular culture. You only show young people, you know, not old people. And, um, you know, shops. You know, which always cater for the younger set and even casual conversations. This is pervasive and it's self-fulfilling. If you believe that universally that older people are a burden, they will quickly become a burden. And that is a fact of life. Um, and instead, we need to see the glass as half full rather than half empty. We focus so much on what we lose in old age when there is so much that we still have, in fact, that what we still have is still growing, and I'll come to that in a minute. And as a result, missing a lot of opportunities because we don't see the persons as the older persons as being able to contribute to our society and being able to live with purpose. That age is a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, I, you know, this is a, a research that has been done by many others. This particular research found that seniors with more positive self-perceptions of aging which is measured up to 23 years you know, uh, earlier, lives seven and a half years more than those with less positive self-perceptions of aging. You know? And this advantage remained after accounting for differences in gender, socioeconomic status, loneliness, functional health, and so on. This is done by Yale professors and one Miami University professor. So it can't be bad, right? can't be wrong. Why the Miami University professor? I don't, I'm not sure. Maybe all the older people are in Miami and Florida. Um, and many others. Studies show that as we become older, we become happier. Now, our ability to handle stress improves. You know, we savor relationships. You know, we live lives with more authenticity. We are better at emotional regulation. We're more grateful, and people develop the intrinsic urge to give back. Another study. Okay, I'm going to. Uh, you, you saw the the few uh, the. Cognitive ability, the fluid cognitive ability uh, slide. This one is even more optimistic than that because the other slide was a bit uh, depressing because it means that uh, cognitive ability, you know, you, you can't learn new things or uh, problem solve. This is another study that shows that um, as you grow older, you become more distracted, your cognitive control is uh, worsens. And if you focus on tasks that um, needs focused attention, which is the red line, of obviously you know, your performance goes lower when uh, your cognitive control goes. But if you focus on tasks that actually do benefit from diffuse attention, um, actually your performance grows higher. You know? In short, if you are more distracted, you're better at uh, problem solving and taking in new information, creative problem solving and taking in new information. So people who are distracted like me, even before I become old, you know, that, that, that's good news. You know, there are certain tasks for you that you know, will leverage on your strength. Okay, this is a slide that is a little bit similar. Sorry, I, I thought I could point with my pointer, you know, so I can't. So I, uh, these are my only numbers, I promise. Um, a, a bit similar to, the, to I think, to what uh, the economic support ratio in the IPS study found, right? 
Um, I, I take 1999 to 2014, and we specifically, you know, we always look at life expectancy at birth, you know, 77.6, 82.6, you know, and we always use 65 years at the cutoff point. Though this slide, I'm trying to make the argument that we should sh keep on shifting the 65 years as the benchmark because the 65, the 70-year-old in 2014 is behaving like the 65-year-old in 1999. How? Because if you look at the labor force participation rate, uh, those, above, those above 70 who are working in 2014 is 15.3%. That's even higher than the labor force participation rate in 1999 of those 65 years and above. Um, the health-adjusted uh, life expectancy at birth is, has increased about four years for both males and females. And if you then com uh, you know, look at the OH dependency, dependency ratio, everything just has shifted. You know, 65 has become 75. So you should compare the OH dependency ratio in 1999 using the 65 years benchmark, which is 10.8%, and compare that with the 70 years you know, old dependency ratio, which is 9.9%, which is an improvement, actually, in 2014. So things have actually been pretty good because of the demographic dividend. But of course, it is not going to persist. You know? it's, uh, it's improved. If you look at uh, 70, it's, it's a new 65. But you know, oncoming, there will be issues. We heard about this, you know, living our lives in, in sequence. You know, and it'll be very depressing if we say that the work you know, box here keeps on growing you know, as we age, right? And we should do this, you know, play, work, and learn. But, and, and that's throughout our lives. But what jobs allow to, us to do this? To play, work, and learn at the same time. So I challenge employers, you know, you, uh, if the jobs for the, for the middle age is, is, is so poor, in terms of allowing them to do this, you know, in terms of the job design, uh, there's no chance for the older people to also enjoy you know, uh, living lives in parallel in, in future. Who knows the woman who is second from the right? Please put up your hands. Oh dear, <laughs> okay, <laughs> because uh, then it reveals my age. Um, she's Jane Fonda, okay? She's an aging advocate. I spoke at a conference with her in London a few months ago, um, and we were spoken, speaking on aging, and she is an amazing age advocate. And she had this thing about these, these fantastic words, you know, age not as pathology, but age as potential. Basically, you know, we, if we think about um, age focusing on the physical elements, then it's an arch. Right, because there's a decline. But if you think about age as moving towards authenticity, towards happiness, you know, then it's a staircase all the way you know, to, uh, to the end as we gain wisdom. Beautiful. Um, now I'm going to show you some of these ideas. You know, some are done by friends like mine you know, and some done by myself um, of what is happening, what you can do on the ground to integrate all those elements that I, I mentioned, you know, the, the optimism, the contribution of older people, uh, the fact that uh, older people have strength. This is one, Ibasho, it was started by Dr. Emi Kiyota, you know, a friend of mine who is a 
environmental gerontologist. He's done this in Japan. Obviously, you can see the Japanese words, uh, Nepal, Philippines. And it's a place, you know, Ubasho means a place where you can feel like yourself. And there are very few places in Singapore where older people can feel like themselves, where they, can, they don't lose respect from others in society, where they are with others and they are contributing. So here, the older people you know, serve, you know, the, the drinks and the snacks, but I think the important thing is that you know, they are seen as valuable assets of the community. Uh, there's community, um, uh, they, are, they have a voice, you know, they, they together with, with the facilitators develop these projects. Um, and there's demarginalization, you know, they become change agents. They care for other people instead of just being cared for. Philanthropists, you know, um, and I belong to, in the world of philanthropists, you know, have been called by, and we're answering Minister Gan's call, you know, to be the innovation hub, you know, to be problem solvers. He said, you know, please provide you know, more innovative ways to better support caregivers, you know, care services, including assisted living services. And I have, in my time, been focusing on providing assisted living facility, or trying to, anyway. Uh, this is a survey by Singaporeans to, to show that they also themselves want this. And the whole idea of assisted living, which is very different from a nursing home, is that, I mean, and this is usually for those who are not, who don't have really severe health care needs, and, and, and needs in terms of help with activities of daily living, is that it's your own home. It's not, you're not in an institution, that there is community, that the social capital is critical, and that everyone contributes to the life of that place. I mean, there are many models of assisted living, but the one that I want to create with a charity partner, together with the Asia Philanthropy Circle, which is where I spend most of my time, and, and other donors and other philanthropists, is, is this. And um, we have a plot of land, actually, the, 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 the Catholic Welfare Services and ourselves, but uh, right now, unfortunately, you know, the, the paper is still stuck at the ministry, you know, <laughs> for almost uh, two years already, okay? Um, and when we, so I've got no pictures to show you for this because we, we have not been able to start to design it, but when we put our design brief together and, and coming together with the principles of what this place is, you know, I've basically done a work cloud of those principles and things will come up, you know, that, uh, you know, that, you know, are important. You know, yes, you know, residents, we call the people in the nursing home residents as well, but do we really respect them as residents you know, who have choice, who are empowered to do things for themselves and for other people? Do we focus on the home element, the community element? And quite often, those things are missing. And that, um, the main uh, issue with older, the, the main problem with older people is not even finances, or the physical self, it's loneliness. And you need to build up the social capital of older people. Um, one, among themselves, there's so much mutual help, self-help that can happen, right? Um, and two, with younger people, the problem that there will be contestation, contestation over things like space and, and, and everything else is because younger people and older people don't come together to problem solve. And when they are able to do that, they offer solutions, not just the problems inherent in aging, 
but also to an array of other challenges that demand attention. So a senior mentoring the young, for example, is a cure of loneliness for the older person, but there's also guidance for the young. Okay? An age-friendly infrastructure is also a child-friendly infrastructure. You don't just focus on the solutions for the older people. Um, older people are consumers too. We forget about that. We never advertise for them. We never cre create enough products for them. Uh, Gunki Kaki is uh, uh, an initiative of the Lian Foundation. We brought two older people to Japan to test out their elder care facilities and to go to the malls, you know, which cater for older people. Right? And so uh, we brought them to this mall uh, where older people, where they, they start the day in the mall, you know, in the store by having exercise. Uh, and the whole complex is geared towards them. It's so welcoming. Uh, and of course, the two, our two Singaporeans are saying, wouldn't it be nice if we had something like this? And the silver industry is a huge opportunity. Right? This, that's a street for older people that even a man who's bang, bend, you know, backwards, I mean, he's, 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 he can't even, uh, he's 90 degrees bent, you know, feels comfortable uh, going shopping, right? The silver industry is a huge potential. And if Singapore is an aging population, we should be the center of this in Singapore for the rest of this region. Um, we also have experimented with uh, gym tonic, you know, uh, gyms for the older people using uh, what we call pneumatic exercise equipment. Sorry about the typo. Uh, incredible state-of-the-art uh, equipment from Finland, you know, you sit down, you've got an RFID tag, it recognizes you, it adjusts the weights according to what the physio has prescribed. And, the, and if you have done enough reps over time, it will automatically adjust the weights by 100 grams, you know, if the physio has put that in. Um, and we have, we have been implementing this, you know, in many institutions, and we have rolled this out for the community to fight frailty. This is very important, right? Because once you start being frail, everything steadily goes down. Uh, one of the things that we are building together with uh, Cochineo Foundation and Peace Haven is uh, 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 this project, uh, Jade Circle, which is an extension to the Peace Haven nursing home. This is different from the assisted living. This is a more traditional nursing home type, but we are trying to transform it such that uh, now, this is the outside, it's not, this is going to be the inside where you have cafes, you have hairdresser. So those hairdressers you know, who earn a lot of money in Singapore can go there as well and contribute to and volunteer themselves in, at, this, at this charity. Um, you've got a supermarket so that even those with dementia, you know, it's safe for them to, to go through the same routine that they've always done for the rest of their lives. Um, okay, I think I've run out of time. This is what the room looks like. You know, it's designed by Peter Tay, who is an award-winning designer, President of Designs Award winner, um, contributing much of his time, you know, uh, for a meaningful project. So, in short, we have to change mindsets. This is critical. See what's possible. When we see what's possible, a lot of things open up. Of course, we need to act with urgency. So you want to be, maintain optimism because you are not optimistic about the future. We have lost it. But at the back, act with urgency, you know, prototype quickly with seniors as part of the solution. Don't just do things for them. They have to be part of the solution. And focus long term. And the intergenerational solidarity would not be an issue. Why? Because 
You know, unlike race, you don't change. Religion, unlikely. Socioeconomic status, we hope never. We all will age. This is a cleavage where we will be on the other side at some point. So if we think long term, we are doing things for ourselves and future, um, and we won't do something that will uh, not benefit the, the whole society overall. And with this, then we can create that uh, golden age of aging that I, was, I started with. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Lian, for that, for uh, giving us that uh, um, really uplifting uh, sense of what aging in Singapore could be like with your uh, examples of gin tonic, um, Project Jade Circle, your ideas for assisted living, and also reminding us of um, Jane Fonda's uh, little models that age is not a pathology, but age is a potential and age is a staircase. Also, your ideas drilling back to sort of us middle-aged people who are still working, that if we are in the position to design work and a work community, then we should really, for our own selves, but also for our seniors, think of work not in a sequential way, but to allow for a parallel stacking of learn, learning, working and playing as well. So there's a lot that we can all do in this room uh, to try and achieve that positive vision. Um, so thank you for that. So um, with that, I would want you all to prepare to pose your questions to these two amazing people. Let me just uh, get the ball rolling by asking them, okay, if we all want to be cognizant of where the points are for contestation and try and staunch those prospects, but also, therefore, in a positive manner, bring in solutions and ways in which we can integrate all of us, regardless of race, language, religion, and certainly age, mm -hmm. then would your vision be of a Singapore that is ageless, where we do not discuss age at all? It's not just impolite, but it's irrelevant. Or is your vision of a Singapore that is age-friendly, where you do call out age because you purposely want to address any blind spots that you might have that uh, make our workplaces age-prohibitive, that make our society unfriendly to elders? So I'm just giving you a choice, given that we all, I mean, both of all three of us, want a more integrated Singapore, a happier Singapore, then is it one that is ageless? We don't name the age issue, it is irrelevant. Or one that is age-friendly, where we have to call out age and then address it. Okay, there's an analogy here, and forgive me because I follow politics. We had the reserve, oops, reserve presidential election. And our choice there was to call out race and then say we need to address it in order to further the inclusion the political representation and inclusion of our minorities. So this is the analogy. Age, ageless or age-friendly? Over to you. Then please go to the mics and get ready with your questions, audience. Um, I don't think it's either or, uh, Gillian. Okay. 
And to be an ageless society where we all like to think we want to live in an ageless society is going to take us decades. You've got to get the mindsets changed. And, you know, maybe there's nothing wrong in age, but to think of age more positively, you know, so that it doesn't mean 65 after that you can't work anymore, and 65 you're elder. I mean, elderly is an adjective for me. It's become in Singapore a noun. There are the elderlies, you know. I mean, why do we keep coining these things, you know? And uh, I think it immediately puts people in a category. Um, age, so being ageless is, uh, is how you look on age, but it takes years before we can change that mindset. I think we are trying to be age-friendly, you know, in Singapore. I see us acting, the, certainly government, society, the CSOs, everyone is talking about aging. And in recent years, I, certainly this issue is being addressed to make things more age-friendly, okay. all right? Now, on your reserve election, I did think when I was thinking of the vote, the big senior vote that, you know, if it's going to be such a big proportion, 25%, mm -hmm. uh, would your sixth generation of politicians, the successors, include someone who's 65. And we don't always look at younger people. It's possible you can have some reversal in the kinds of uh, politicians you look as suitable mm -hmm. politicians and the ones that will represent society. I'll just stop there. Thank you. Over to you, Ms. Lian. Yeah, I think um, ageless is one of those things that you can put out really far in the distance, you know, okay. a bit like zero poverty and uh, no crime, you know, you, you know that you're never really quite going to get there, but you really have to try. Uh, but it's not so much whether you bring up age as at all, it's how age is used, right? Mm -hmm. How age is used. Um, and the connotations around age, you know, it's like, oh, already, you know, 70, oh dear, you know, <laughs> already... Uh, Rather, uh, if, if people are using it a lot more positively, which people aren't, you know, say, wow, 70, fantastic. Uh, yeah. uh, then, then, of course, it's, 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 it's to be welcomed. Okay. Thank you. Now it's over to you. Uh, I recognize Professor Tambaya and then uh, Ambassador Zaino Abedin. Yeah, over to you, Paul. Thank, thanks, Julian. Um, I, I also would disagree with your analogy because uh, it would have been nice if we decided to reserve the prime ministership as well as some of the other posts. Oh, so you would choose the other way. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, uh, the first question is direct, actually the, the question is directed at Professor Chan, and I think it relates to, to her very interesting point that Singaporeans have been uh, brought up in the democratic socialism of the early PAP, which I think she has defined better than anyone else in her, some of her earlier writings. Um, and I think that what Singaporeans are, are sort of uh, upset about is not so much a contestation between young and old, but the young feeling that the playing field has to be level, in that the kind of life that our parents enjoyed is something that we will never have and something that our children can only dream about. I'll give you an example. One year after uh, ORDing, I was able to, to buy a, a uh, uh, you know, a condo in uh, District 10 for $460,000. When I tell that to my medical officers, they look at me as though I came from another planet. Okay. 
<laughs> so, uh, and also when I went into my career, I knew that there was a retirement age, that there were people who were going to retire, and so I could look forward to being a head of department at a certain age because the head of department would have to step down and, and you know, he would be occupied productively doing something else. But if the situation has changed for young people that they cannot afford the kind of property that their parents had, or if they do not have the kind of job prospects because uh, you know, the, there is this uh, um, sort of people holding on to positions for, for way too long, then I think that's going to be more a source of contention rather than any age, uh, uh, age warfare per se. Thank okay, you. thank you, Paul. Um, over to Ambassador. Yes, please. Thank you, Julian. Uh, I have a question on tensions. Um, first of all, I'd like to thank Lauren uh, for using the photo of uh, Jane Fonda. It made me feel young. <laughs> I'm in the grey age, but I'm looking forward to my golden age. And I say Jane Fonda because I like her quote, but not a pathology, potential. But staircase for the aged, a bit susala. <laughs> Moving up and onward, not physically, but spiritually, <laughs> emotionally, and uh, in productivity too. I know, <laughs> Julian, I know, <laughs> um, You know, uh, talking about uh, demography and race, when we first started discussing about demography, I remember a data showed that if reproduction rate at that time were to continue, the Malays would constitute about 23, if not 25% of Singapore population. And that must have scared a lot of non-Malay Singaporeans. Um, but moving on, I think even the Malays in Singapore are just like any other Singaporean, reproduction rate has fallen. Um, but the concern then, when, when Mr. Go Chok Tong first raised with me as editor of Rita Harian about this policy of, of attracting talent, he asked me what did I think about it. I said, it's very understandable, but on one condition. Please make sure that the population of the Malays, the ratio of the population of the Malays, 15%, does not fall drastically. And he smiled. He said, no problem, because then he knew the Malays were producing merrily and <laughs> in great numbers. But things have changed. So my question is, has demography in the context of race changed? Not only in terms of numbers, but in terms of income divide, in terms of skills divide, in terms of employment divide, and whether in fact this will also continue to um, bring about the kind of tensions and contestations and problems we have? Or have things changed that we no longer discuss the question and the challenges of demography and uh, cohesion and harmony uh, as we are discussing it today? Thank you. Okay, thank you, Ambassador. I just want to recognise the gentleman in the corner. Yeah. Um, Last yes, one. Hello, Johannes Lowe from Black Box Research. Yes. Um, I have a policy question. So the scenarios that you describe sound like the time to act was yesterday, but Singapore's reputation as a global hub, as a fast-moving economy with innovation, to me stands a little bit in contradiction. So how can the next generation of leaders roll out age-friendly policies and protect the status that Singapore has kind of hard-earned? 
to be a global hub without compromising either. And, and maybe if you could comment on, for example, housing policies, the new BTOs I see, the new condos I see, those developers are not putting in a lot of money on age-friendly stuff. I mean, the rails here, ramp there, but come on. That's not what you are talking about. So I, I'm wondering, when is the time to mandate a couple of those changes so that 40 years from now, the infrastructure we are building is ready for the pyramid you were showing? And I think those will be some costly decisions which might not come without trade-offs, if you could comment your perspective on that. Thank you, Johannes. Okay, so over to the panelists. We have a, a range of questions, so I would just invite you to address the ones that you are interested in. Okay, go ahead. Thank you. Well, actually, they are all very wide-ranging questions, uh, three of them, and I don't know if I can do justice. First, a question from John Tambaya. Uh, I think it's John. Yeah. Paul. Paul. Yeah. Paul Tambaya. Uh, I keep mixing. Uh, the uh, question whether uh, young people feel that it's not a level playing field and that in job prospects, they feel that, uh, you know, the old geezers are all still there, you know, and they can't take over. That's why I highlighted the power positions. Um, I think in terms of level playing field is a cost question in terms of the rise in the cost of living. Two things you have to remember too. Yes, it's much more costly for young people to own the home or the car. They are earning more money now too. When we started, you know, years back, decades back, salaries were very low. Housing was very low too. Then you could buy an HDB flat. No frills flats, and they were really no frills. Now, even the first BTO has frills. So you're really paying more for a different quality of flat, and you, are, you earn a little more, but I think that uh, gap is still there. But it's an issue that society will have to deal with. But I do not think that it is an issue that can be solved without economic growth, job growth and opening the society. So it's something we must always try to tackle. There are so many subsidies in Singapore, far more than you will find in other societies. It's not just the salary. Look at the subsidies. I can't remember now because I wasn't expecting to answer this question, but I saw an advertisement by HDB in, was it the Lian He Jiao Bao, listing the prices for the apartments, HDB apartments. I could not believe how the lowest, the cheapest, how much the cheapest apartment cost. Now, it is not a three-room flat or four-room. It's probably a one, two-room, you know, a sort of bed sit, that sort of small, one-room flat, one-room plus. But it is really cheap if you go into that. So it is a question that will be there, cannot be solved easily, but it, uh, and I think we are trying our best in Singapore. In terms of jobs, job prospects, uh, how do you, so the aged, the aging are arguing that we should keep the jobs. And the younger people are saying, we want your jobs. <laughs> the, uh, you know, in the, I have said once, and I don't know that it went down in such a, in, uh, you know, as a popular comment, I thought that once we reach 65 or 60, whatever that age is, if we were to work again and get recontracted, I am prepared to accept lower pay. 
I don't think it went down very well with some of my colleagues, you know. But society has to deal with that. Uh, do you want to keep the job at the same high pay, or are you prepared for solidarity and to create the kind of harmony to show that you are not going to take that high pay and some of that pay can create new jobs. We can offer that. But uh, it is an issue. But right now, you don't have so many of these older people that are staying on, to be quite honest. Uh, the second question on tensions, uh, and that is uh, Zainal's uh, question. There are several aspects to, to your question. Uh, the, it is about the race divide. The hard one, which I won't touch because I don't have the data, uh, Zainal, is within each race, how is each race group doing in terms of employment, income, etc.? You know, what are the divides? Has it grown bigger? I am unable right now to give you that data, and I don't think in this uh, seminar, in this conference, the background paper highlighted this. Yeah, so I won't be able to answer that. Um, you are talking of replacement rates, and you know the Malay ethnic community. I think you are right. Uh, the Malay population now, the reproduction rate is exactly the same as you know, other ethnic groups. So Malays are not reproducing themselves. And in my study on diversity, what I find is in terms of migration, immigration, to top up the numbers, there is a thinking in Malay society, at least the Malays I spoke to um, and who participated in our focus group discussions, that they do not consider Malays from Mindanao, for instance, as Malays. You know, they only consider Malays from Malaysia as Malays to top up the population. Now, that's really hard to get. And even from Indonesia, yes, but. So what are your sources for replenishing the population? I was rather surprised, but maybe I should not have been, in the uh, statement that, you know, from Mindanao, I thought they were Malays but that's not considered Malays by the Malay community. Lawrence? I'll tackle the... Oh, that was a third. Okay. That was a third. Never mind. The third. But you do. You okay. go. Okay. <laughs> I'll come back. The career renewal question first. Uh, I think Gillian was whispering about, yeah, why is it a zero-sum game? Um, and this is where we have to challenge the traditional work structures yeah. where it's so hierarchical, there's only one boss, one HOD, yes. you know? and everybody wants, and that's like the pinnacle of the career. Uh, we need to evolve different structures where you know, younger people can take on some of the responsibility as a boss, but older people can take on uh, very senior responsibilities of authority, you know, side by side with these younger people. You know? So again, it's, it's the redesigning you know, the work structure such that it's not a zero-sum game, but you are drawing the strengths from the younger people and the older people. Right? Um, uh, mind you, I, th I think uh, I mean, there many studies to show that uh, a lot of on successful entrepreneurs only start the successful businesses at the age of the late eight, late thirties, right? You know? so again, you know, you have to challenge mindsets that you know it's only one, you know, it's only the younger people who can be entrepreneurial. I mean, you what you need is a mix of the two. 
you know, uh, older people with their experience and maturity, you know, mixing up with the younger people, you know, with their energy, enthusiasm, and then so on. Um, inequality, I mean, that's a tough one when it's race, I mean, uh, there's tensions between uh, races uh, and, and demography, that's uh, a tough one, which we don't have enough open conversations. I often say that uh, uh, development, you know, raising incomes, reducing inequality is the best form of contraception. You know, TFRs will conver naturally converge you know, when you develop everyone and reduce the inequality. Um, and I think what is of more concern now, also from an IPS study, is not the racial issues, right? It's the class divide that is becoming more of a problem than the race divide, you know, and I think we need to address that even more urgently. But, you know, in terms of the proportion of the races uh, being the same throughout time, that's a very sensitive issue, which, is, which I think we should talk about and, and, and not avoid in, in, in public, but we seem to avoid that. Yes, there's a great urgency in building for the future, you know, that is age-friendly, child-friendly, um, I'm very frustrated because we are very, uh, our government is very ambivalent on this, which means that they don't support anything that uh, appears to be giving encouragement, incentives to this, this area. Um, I think there needs to be some uh, incentives or concessions, I won't call them incentives, concessions you know, in terms of building homes for older people. For example, I mean, you need more circulation space because you need, you know, you need to cater for wheelchairs and so on. All this is dead space that you, you, know, you can't really sell. You know? So uh, I would like uh, authorities, for example, to give more GFA to projects you know, for senior housing mm -hmm. uh, that is above the allowable GFA, things like that. But I don't think we are, back to my earlier point, you know, uh, uh, allowing private sector, non-profit sector to experiment, prototype quickly, before designing the policy, I think government tends to want to you know, figure out everything out first, you know, have a beautiful policy blueprint. It doesn't work this way you know, anymore. Well, can I invite okay. you to just share a few details about mm. the roadblocks you feel mm. you've sort of faced as you were trying to do the prototyping? Yeah. I mean, let's be very pointed so yeah. that we can have that list you know, and work at. So, uh, Lawrence, please. Okay. Um, so, I think many of you may have followed the, the, the trade circle issue when we first came out to say, you know, let's you know, experiment with uh, uh, a dementia-friendly facility that's got predominantly single and, and double rooms and became all about that, you know, and, uh, and, and funding was being, subsidies were being withdrawn for that project, you know, uh, for the operating... What was the heart yeah. of the policy <laughs> issue there? The heart was that uh, I, I think uh, there was a fear that this will be successful and set the, increase the expectations of seniors, right? Mm -hmm. um, and our point is that, you know, you have to ask the seniors of the future what they want and we need to build for the future rather than just look at, you know, the, the seniors of today. I think the seniors of the future are fundament, fundamentally very different. If, um, uh, and I think they would want something with a bit more privacy. And in fact, you know, a lot of health outcomes improve, you know, if you are able to and even social outcomes, you know, it's ironical, but in Japan, we've, they found that if you provide single rooms as opposed to dormitories, um, those older persons in nursing homes actually socialize more than those who live in dormitories. You know? Bit of <laughs> Again, a paradox. As, as a, a paradox, paradox, I can tell you what the intuition is, but yeah. uh, it's, uh, you know, we, we have to, 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 the thing is, 
don't treat this as the, the blueprint. I mean, I think we, our society, I'm, we're not saying that ours is the best, right? Or the only way to do things. You know, but we want different solutions and okay. try, try things out before we figure out the policy. Okay. Okay. Just to be specific, you are asking for the same subsidies to be had for yes. uh, you like know, um, uh, senior beneficiaries, if they are poor. regardless yeah. of uh, whether yeah. they're in, that, in a dormitory setting with eight yeah. beds or the, the two beds. No Absolutely <laughs> the same. Okay, thank you. Now, Prof Chan, you wanted to come back on Johannes's question, which is what uh, Lawrence was just dealing with. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say... Actually, Lawrence, you may be talking of a new business model, you know, and uh, this is the new silver do dollar that you're going to earn. So you may have some subsidy in the home, but seniors are prepared to spend money purchasing their new bed space, room space, dormitory space in the home, which is, you know, uh, and I can see that's a business, business that will grow. I'd like to answer the question from Johannes on the contradiction or tension between uh, Singapore trying to fulfill the ambition of being a global hub and yet being aware and catering to the new aging population. I don't think there's a contradiction at all. You know, we can all walk and chew gum. You can do two things and you can do more than two things at the same time. And whilst the government of Singapore and Singapore is trying to develop Singapore into a global hub, we can also do things to help the aging population age more gracefully and more conveniently. Uh, why do I say that? Uh, we do see policies, as I've said earlier, that there are so many conferences now on aging. There are so many research centers in Singapore, in universities, that are looking into aging policies. That shows us a new consciousness, trying to do what we can to cater to the future aging population, the present aging population. All that whilst we are trying our best to be a global hub, because you don't have that many options. If you're not a global hub, you don't play. If you're not a global city, you don't play. So we have to do these several things. Mm -hmm. uh, I would like to cite, because uh, Cheong Kun Hien is sitting there, Dr. Cheong Kun Hien, that HDB is trying different um, um, modes of accommodation now, new designs where you have several gen three generation flats, housing people, near f old folks near families. If you want to live near your parents, you can actually, you know, ballot with priority. So that helps. Do we design our infrastructure for aging? We're trying to, we are changing. We cannot get all there at once in five years or in a decade. You know, this is Singapore, you see, our desire for perfection. If we say this is a policy, we must roll everything out at the same time. I think we're trying to do that, but replacement of infrastructure is very expensive. It's expensive, but we should do it. You know, I am in the Lee Kuan Yew Center for Innovative Cities in SUTD. One of my colleagues, an architect, said that there's something called inconvenient architecture where you don't actually cater, design to cater 100% to the aging or whatever group. Because if you're going to put rails, you don't you eliminate staircases and so on, you eliminate opportunities for engagement and for talking to each other. If you make, say, the road a little rougher, 
there are some steps to climb. Old people will find it difficult to go up. The passing young person may then start feeling, I better help this uncle, I'll help this auntie to walk up those steps. You create opportunities for conversation and opportunities to be a community. And I think that's what we want. And so when we change infrastructure, it won't be perfect, but I hope it will be better for older people and it will also help engender solidarity. Okay, thank you, Prof Chan and uh, uh, Mr Lin. We have a, a minute and a half to go, so I want to recognise the lady who's standing on my right there. She's been very patient. And the final round, quick, just run to the mics. Okay, please shoot with you. Yep. I'm Kai from Rebels Girls School. Yes. Um, you, uh, this, this is uh, regarding something that Professor Chan actually said, but this question is open to uh, both speakers. Uh, Professor Chan, you said something about integrating technology in the workplace to help the elderly with their jobs. And I'm wondering, um, in your opinion, to what extent should we make allowances for seniors in the workplace? If these resources are needed in order to help a senior do their job, does that not indicate that the senior in question is incapable of doing their job? And I'm saying this not to discriminate against elders, but would this not be an inequality against the younger people who are searching for jobs as well and working hard for these jobs? Okay, thank you very much. Brema? Yeah, uh, thank you very much, Madam Chair, and to the speakers. I would like to, uh, unlike uh, Ambassador... Please go ahead. Uh, yeah. I love the point about aging as a staircase for a mindset change. And also based on the point that Singapore is a signatory to the Madrid plan of action that I hope will later come up, plan of aging. Uh, but the, on, based on the survey that was presented by IPS, there's a whole issue, uh, discussion on economic support ratio with a description defining what it is. Listening to Lawrence, I think it's very clear the high consumer levels for the aging group, for the group growing older rather, as well as how they can churn their own economy through different jobs, etc. So I wonder whether we need to still hang on to this discussion on dependency is a point that I would like to put forward because we see to be so keen to contest in that area, okay. the burden, the financial burden. Yes. Add to that the earlier discussion of fluidity and crystallizing. Why are they separate when it should be integrated, whether you're young or old? Okay. The last point that I would like to make on this is based again on the survey that's hail, something about health risk, etc. Health adjusted life expectancy. What are the indicators? And looking at what Lawrence presented in the graphs there, how are we adjusting in terms of supporting people with whatever hail tends to mean? Because I don't think it's expressed clearly yet in the survey results. Okay, this thank is, you. Thank you, Bremer. Just one last point on <laughs> wheelchairs. I think the wheelchairs, we have to look at how foreign domestic workers are pushing people in an outside realm of the home environment because it becomes a convenient way to move about when actually many of the people growing older could walk. Okay, thank you, Brema. Okay, um, over to you, Prof Chan, and uh, maybe you can respond and give us your final word on the topic. Yeah, 
Uh, I'd like to respond to the young lady uh, from the school on her question, is a good question, is about uh, enabling technology. Indeed, I did say that OP, there will be enabling technology which will help older people to stay in the workforce. What I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, because uh, that they are not able to work. If they are not able to work, enabling technology will not help them. It's just that some technologies take away the need to have strength. It may take away some of the qualities that may not be there when you are aging. You press a button, things will happen. You, you know, work things on a computer, it will happen. So that's what I refer to as enabling technology. Your concern is creating this enabling technology, does it take away from the allocation for young people? I think the government is very mindful. In fact, the uh, concern amongst the aging is that so much money is spent on young. It's a young world, schooling, uh, you know, and when you go to school today, you are helped to take expeditions overseas, you go to the university, you will have a term abroad, facilities are amazing, computer, etc. So I don't think young people need be concerned that where education is concerned, the government will take away from you because education is what we believe in and it is the way we develop our resource. Our natural resource is the human resource. So I would not worry so much about that. And in any case, as we grow, as we age, remember we're not producing the babies, you know. So younger people are not going to take away such a big chunk yeah, of the money. Right. So Precisely. that's redistribution there. Final words? Uh, fin yeah. Final words? Uh, final word, I highlighted the issues, as Gillian said rightly, that to show that there are issues further down the road. We should not all be sort of, we're all, sol this is community, solidarity. No. The questions you heard highlighted concerns and could be potential conflict. The thing is to understand these are the issues yes. and how we are going to deal with it. And actually, I really do think that we have started the conversation in a very serious way and very profound way. So I think we will be okay, but they ha we still have to go through the process. Yes. Thank you. Lawrence? Okay. Uh, very quickly, I think we have run out of time. Um, I've not noticed any contestation for jobs between young and old in, in Singapore. It's been very much a... Uh, a full uh, employment situation. There's just nobody we need more to be people. found to do the jobs. The I issue understand. is this mismatch in skill set, which actually hits the older people even more. Mm. Um, and we all have to grow the pie, you know, as we as we as we go along. And I don't think that there is any, there should be any too, too much concern there. Um, in terms of how to support older people as they age, you know, that the uh, hail, which is the health adjusted. Uh, life expectancy is, is a very standardized uh, measure uh, used throughout the world. Um, the, the issue in Singapore is that as, we, uh, as our life expectancy grows so quickly, I mean, does our, uh, are the years that we spend in ill health growing as well? You know, we need to keep it to the same or even reduce it. Yes. Um, unfortunately, I think that in the last few, uh, last decade or so, that has been widening a little bit. Um, and we have to get our people to fight frailty. You know, at what our problem is that we put so much cotton wool around older people, say you cannot do this, you cannot do that, 
you know, they become disabled as a result. You know. So again, we need to have the optimism to, you know, to challenge older people, you know, take more risks, you know, um, otherwise it will be a downhill trend. And the point about you know, working, about dependency ratio is, is, is an important one. You know. Do we even need to talk about it? Mm -hmm. If everyone is doing play, work, and learn in parallel, now, if everyone is working in parallel you know, to the ends of their lives, and work is not just about paid employment, it's about any form of contribution to society, you know, including unpaid, then the dependency ratio actually goes away because we will not see older people as dependent uh, people. So, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. Right, so <laughs> please join me in thanking our panelists for sharing their points of view. Let me just quickly round it up. I think uh, my key takeaways are, are, are these. Uh, first, that uh, I think in the room we talked about uh, a lot of zero-sum game scenarios where we're fighting one another for resources and jobs. And I, I think, uh, you know, Lawrence and uh, Prof Chan, you were talking about changing the workplace so that we can accommodate all, so that we can think win-win and look for those integrative solutions. Technology can offer it, but certainly enterprise, innovation, is just going to grow the pie so that there's just going to be space for everyone to, as you said, work, live, play and study all at the same time. And therefore, the second point is really that we do have these parameters where how many people are aging beyond 65, just as planning parameters. And therefore, Prof Chan, to your point, that facilities can be provided for when we finally get there. But I think, Lawrence, you are emphasizing that you're trying to build, explore uh, facilities that can accommodate people of young, old and old, old to make it very flexible, which comes to Johanna's point that we are a global city. We're thinking in, in, in very dynamic, innovative ways to try and anticipate the issues that lie ahead. Finally, I would just say IPS at 30, we are 30 years old. We have actually looked at the issue of demography and ageing all these 30 years. Uh, and, uh, you know, and let's just admit that policymakers in the government's first committee on ageing was at least 30 years ago. And therefore, we've got the CPF systems that anticipate the ageing issue. And then the question is whether there's enough. And we have uh, barrier-free access across the city, uh, which was, uh, you know, a, a, a kind of investment in making sure that we are ageless in the public facility sense. So I think, you know, we, we, uh, glass is half full. And I hope that, you know, you'll join me in thanking them, reminding us that the glass is half full and that you yourselves will also feel that uh, you can play a part in empowering an aging society so that it's not going to have any uh, sort of, uh, take any shine off us being a dynamic, innovative uh, city that's attractive to the young and old. So with that, thank you very much for tuning in and we move to lunch.